Okay, we are live and welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I want to first just begin um, before I introduce our guest for today. Um, I want to share with you the intentions for why this podcast has been started. Um, there's 11 of them and they're organic, so they may continue to grow. Um, number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, who were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they were doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other support as needed, draw your own conclusions and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and support you. I want to welcome a special guest for today. His name is Miri Byland. Um, he's an artist and designer who, is, who resides in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with his husband, Blake, and dog, Charlie. Miri survived physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse directly from Yogi Bhajan when he was a teenager. Now he wants to shed light on those abuses, as well as provide support for others. Well, Miri, thank you so much for being on today. Well, wow, it's been a long uh, journey to get to this point, and what a wonderful statement of intention. Thank you for coming up with that. Yeah, thank you for um, sharing your story earlier this year and being a part of um, the inspiration of why this podcast even exists. Um, well, why do you feel it's important to uh, share your story? You know, uh, there's so much uh, oxygen being given to the other side story too. Uh, 
for example, this morning, uh, I opened up the KRI homepage and on it, the very first statement is this sort of uh, very light washing statement of support for BIPOC, you know, black indigenous people of color, LGBTQ, which they name these organizations that they're so in support of these organizations. And, and to me, it feels like an absolute light washing. It feels like a cover up, uh, a way to do damage control because my experience from Yogi Bhajan was so uh, abusive. And it took me nine years of, in therapy to finally really understand how abusive it was. Because you know, when you're, as, a, as someone who has been victimized, I thought that I deserved that. That's the ultimate uh, abuse, yeah. abusers, uh, like someone as, as talented as, at control and abuse as Yogi Bhajan was, uh, he made the victim feel that, in other, he put the responsibility for all the abuse on the victim. So I thought that I didn't deserve happiness. I thought that I was um, somehow in, and he did this to me by naming and cursing me in a way to my face yeah. saying, you'll never be happy. You're going to die in a gutter. All the things that he said to me, uh, he told, he told me that I would come home in a, in a casket. Um, and this is all because I wasn't, uh, you know, following along with his um, prescription of what my life was supposed to be like. Yeah, I want to pause you there because I want you to actually go back and give us the history of your story and what you're sharing here is, um, is really critical for us to really get the context. Um, but I want to go back to the flag that you pointed about KRI's email today. Yeah. Because that's so poignant. You know, you yeah. know, they're putting um, people of color, black people, you know, I forget the terminology, but essentially it's like um, coining a person, uh, coining black people. So like suddenly whitewashing and then the terminology lightwashing is kind of unique to our community, I think, or spiritual communities that are yeah. pretending that, oh yeah, now Kundalini yoga for trauma, Kundalini yoga can help us through the time and, and instead of dealing with it. So thank you for that. I think speaking yeah. out and your story is so critical for that exact reason so that new yoga students don't get pulled into the web of the hidden shadow of what our community really holds. Uh, exactly. I mean, and you can't, you have to really, and someone pointed this out, put yourself in the shoes of someone who has no idea of any of the history and they're just going on looking to do self-improvement, you know, maybe, uh, the the richest I mean the the worst part of the irony would be like let's say that you are uh, someone who has suffered from sexual abuse coming in to do sexual abuse healing and you're being taught right. through a practice of someone who majorly a sexually abused raped right. um, women that's right and a major predator financially spiritually oh, sexually God. I mean so you can't even name on that always. note. Let's go back. Why don't you tell us, give context for the listeners so that we really, they know who you are. I know okay. who you are. Obviously, as a yeah. kid, I grew up with you. You're a few years yeah. older than me. I knew you as Mitty Pity growing up. 
Um, we grew up in different ashrams. I had no idea the depth and, and length and extent of your story. And so when I heard it, it yeah. unraveled me. And so if you want to, I don't know in what way you want to go back, but please. Yeah. Um, you know, my story is uh, what, and what I'm finding out is that it's actually kind of typical. It's a common scenario in the organization, but I grew up, I was born into the 3H, into 3HO. My parents were both members, started out in Phoenix. Um, and then shortly after, you know. What years? Tell us the okay, years. So I was born in, uh, my mom went there probably, let's say 70, early 70s, because I was born in 75. So, uh, so and she probably had me shortly after she arrived in Española. Her, the last thing her mom told her was don't go get married because my mom was just going for a yoga class, a yoga seminar. And she was in college. Um, she was a Catholic. Um, and so anyway, yeah, you know, she there was no expectation that she would be changing her name, joining a religion, um, i.e. Uh, 3HO, Sikh Dharma. Um, and, and then, so she was married and then I think probably I came along, I'm assuming, you know, a year later or so, <laughs> but, you know, so I was born in Phoenix in 75. Um, and then my mom, as far as I know, I, I've never heard of Yogi Bhajan sanctioning divorce, but my parents were forced that Yogi Bhajan told my mother to divorce my dad immediately when I was age, I think maybe between two and three years old. And it was because he was, uh, the, his big crime, uh, my dad's crime was that he was interested in marijuana. Um, and now today, you know, kids probably think that's so silly. Like really, Yogi Bhajan made your parents divorce because your dad was into marijuana. Well, yeah, at the time Yogi Bhajan was branding his empire the early branding of it included super health in um, Tucson, was it? I'm not sure. Yeah, in, in that's Arizona. Right. My dad and was involved. So they were in really that, trying yes. to recruit and uh, and I think maybe eventually got uh, contracts, federal contracts, to do, uh, uh, you know, um, what do you call? It was it? a lot of anti-drug, anti-AIDS. It was like it was like anti, it was like getting people off a drug program. And I believe it yeah. was um, an AIDS, like health. And that's what I remember my dad being a part of that too. Oh, and by the way, your dad, everyone growing up, this is kind of a funny side story. So my, I was born Midi Pity Singh Khalsa, Midi Pity. No one I knew ever had that name, you know? And so I would go to, I would tell people my name in the community and they'd say, oh, I think you mean Mede Piare. That's <laughs> yeah, funny because that's your uh, dad's They would name. mistake it. Yeah, that's uh, funny. <laughs> and, 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 you know, some really smart people that, uh, anyway, let me, let me not. Yeah, um, I mean, we can diverse in so many ways. I want to really, like, I know. hone okay, in so, on the things that happened to you, you know. So I have to, like, kind of fast forward because the upbringing is sort of typical, but, you know, I didn't have, like, a dad. And that plays into the story later because Yogi Bhajan would later tell me, uh, that the reason I was gay was because my dad, I didn't have a proper a dad and that I needed to learn how to be a man. 
but you know, he, he, he had my parents divorced when I was three and then my mom had another arranged marriage and, uh, and that was, I was probably four between four. I was four at the time. So I had, we had a year of being single. We moved to LA, then we moved to New Mexico. Uh, and by the time I was, uh, four and then, um, and memories are kind of foggy, but one of the things that came up recently, I remember that I was separated from my parents at age four and sent to this random family in Española, Balwant, who uh, actually abused me, not sexually, but physically. He'd spanked me really hard. Um, This is someone who didn't have kids. And the question comes up, why were you separated from your parents? Why did you go to this random family in Española who had no kids and didn't like kids apparently because you know you don't beat kids right right which is you know um so but so then and then I did the whole India program oh first Amritsar Academy because you remember everybody was being pressured to send their kids to India and the ones that refused there was an alternative which was Amritsar Academy in Albuquerque. And about what age are you here? And and that point, I'm in the second grade. And okay. um, and I've done only done first grade in in the United States in, in a public school in Albuquerque, kindergarten and first grade. And then second grade, I'm in uh, Amritsar Academy. By the fourth grade, I'm in India. Um, and fourth I was grade. there um, until I graduated. So around 18. Um, and that's a whole thing that lots of people are talking about the abuses in that, but let's just keep it personal to me, uh, would be my interaction with Yogi Bhajan. And that happened mm-hmm. right around the time that I graduated and came back to the States. And, um, and, and at that point I was, uh, literally just very naively kind of trying to understand my my uh myself and and was forming my identity as a young uh, adult and so i was uh reading a newspaper and i saw an article that said are you questioning or do you have are you have questions about your sexuality do you uh it was something like if you're under the age it was like an underage uh under the age of 21 support group so I decided to uh, look into it and I circled it in the paper. And uh, my mom found, finds this circled newspaper article um, and then confronts me in a very like, there's something you need to tell me kind of a way. And I'm going, what, what happened? And she shows me the article. Um, and, and so I had, uh, I said, yeah, yeah, no, I'm questioning because you know, all my, all, people my age are getting married at this point. I don't even have a girlfriend or so I don't know what's, I I find myself, I'm confused and and I want to keep this private, I told her, uh, because Mm. I'm not sure what, where I stand with any of this, but I'm I'm exploring it. And that's the gist of what I told her. And the next day I came uh, home and she said, I. I, I had to set up an appointment with, with uh, between you and Yogi Bhajan because this is way too big. 
of uh, an issue for you to just deal with on your own. And we need Yogi Bhajan's um, guidance. And that's wow. when uh, I was put in his, uh, I was carted off to Yogi Bhajan's private headquarters in Española, the ranch. Uh, and I walk into the room, here I am 18 years old. I've never kissed a person. I'm like completely just like kind of a goody two shoes. I've got like my little bonnet on my all white and my head tightly wrapped in a nice turban. It did want to look good for my meeting with Yogi Bhajan. And I walk into oh. the room and there's a crowd full of like kind of fancy looking people in fancy clothes and jewelry and Yogi Bhajan sitting on a throne. He's got someone massaging his feet and someone else is like kind of uh, combing his hair. He had his hair down. And um, I walk in the room and his, uh, his question to me, he bellowed out in a big voice. Um, oh, Miri Piri, I heard you want to get fucked in the ass. Ah. And I was like, I just like clammed up. I went whoosh, out of my body. First of all, I zoomed out of my body. I felt I could watch, I think I probably, yeah, it, it was like I, I was outside looking at my body from out, outside. And I remember being oh. like, say something. And so I just said, uh, no, sir, I want to be uh, happy. I want to be my, I want to be truthful and live my, uh, live in truth. I don't want to live a lie. And then I oh. hear him say, and again, I'm outside my body i hear him oh. saying uh responding back to me well you can't no son of Buddha Govind singh is going to be gay okay well again i just want to uh i don't want to live a lie i want to be truthful um and it was this back and forth uh which where i felt almost like a robot because i was not in my body i was just like kind of i just was sticking on this concept of I want to be happy I want to live in truth I don't want to have secrets and you know there's a side story to this part which is that I was seeing some uh hypocrisy within the whole organization and I'm not going to name yeah. names but it was a leader in the community who was married with kids who I think is probably and to this day is probably a closet uh homosexual and I don't know, I mean, I'm not going wow. to make any judgments on that person, but that scared me. And I didn't want to be um, someone who, and th this had happened to other gay people in the Sikh Dharma, I later found out, they were forced into heter you know, arranged marriages with heteros, with heterosexual of the opposite sex. Now and at this time, you're 18, and I mean, the voice of clarity is coming through you, you know, like some part of you is obviously like, no, I want to be in truth. And so like, <laughs> you're saying that you had seen like in your community, in your ashram, somebody who was obviously living in the closet, and some part of you knew that was, was, yes. was getting that. And another part of I didn't know of any of this like, at the time. It wasn't, sorry, uh, it wasn't, you know, formed as, as concrete thoughts. But mm -hmm. this is like an intuitive sense that was in me. Yeah. Who, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so it gave you like in standing there in front of him, this is where this, like, I just want to be in truth was coming from like you're disassociated, which I'm assuming you've mastered disassociation by this time from all the years in India, from being separated at four. I mean, this level of aunt, like we don't think about it because it was normal. Every, it was happening to everyone else too, but I'm assuming by this time at 18, you're pretty good at, at, hovering your body and watching what's going on i don't know yeah that's a good point i don't know when where the disassociation the skill at disassociating because in a way well, it was cool yeah well you're describing it now as hovering your body at the time you were just operating from this place of like you're standing in front of yogi bhajan and having to answer to his scary questions yeah very scary situation and I'm just trying to, uh, my conscious mind is now uh, has, there's like a voice of, it's like a conscious decision to, yeah, just to get through this and say the truth. So it's easy now to kind of look back and kind of frame it a little different. So help us kind of feel that moment, like you're there. Mm saying all these things and then what because you you know you obviously left the path at some point but what did it take to get you from that moment to the next things you know it was a long period I have to tell you that it wasn't like I just uh the the process that I went through with Yogi Bhajan lasted more than a year from that point on I was put under I mean and and I'm piecing it all together now actually years later uh 20 25 years later more 27 years later I'm starting to uh, put the pieces together of what happened for example I didn't know that my mother begged BBG she was friends with Yogi Bhajan's wife I don't know how much influence BBG had on Yogi Bhajan um but my mom begged BBG to ask Yogi Bhajan to give me another chance because there was a moment where he told me I wasn't welcome in Guru Ram Das's ashram and at that point because that was, you were gay because yeah and at that point I told him I didn't trust him and that was the biggest offense like I was like I was I was getting to the point and this is after about a year okay it was a maybe not a whole year but it was uh, there was a whole process between that initial first meeting when I was 18 to when I finally said, you know what? I don't, I'm not buying this. I'm out of here. So give us some of those stories because I know you had some heated interactions. We want to hear like, so this is this first one. You hadn't even come out yourself. You're just having questions and he's throwing all this at you. So then what happened after that? Yeah. So he's telling me I want to get fucked in the ass. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, I've never even kissed somebody. So that's like, news. Right. Like, like, so I'm, I, you know, I have no idea. I, I'm so naive at this point. And so again, like I just keep repeating, I want to live the truth. I want to live. And, and it took me a while to figure out what the truth was. Sure. Um, and the truth, to feel your own to truth. Come out. I did these exercises in my mind. I would try to do telepath. Thick, uh, exercises with Yogi Bhajan because I was around him a lot. I was in uh, in his vicinity. I was in his living room at the ranch a lot. Um, 
I was at all of the yoga classes and the gurdwaras. I guess at that point, I'm not sure what year it was, but he was in Espanola a lot. Um, uh, as opposed to being in Los Angeles where his other headquarters were. Um, and so I was just around him a lot and I was doing these exercises of tele telepathic exercises where I was trying to get him to, um, you know, to hear my thoughts and I would have these arguments, you know, before I ever interacted with him personally, and I'm sure a lot of yoga students can relate to this, I would do, I would have dreams of Yogi Bhajan, I would communicate with him on what I called the etheric level. Or the subtle body as they teach us, right? Okay, yeah, the subtle body. So here I was um, now interacting with, uh, and in that, in that setting, my interactions with him were very, he was like a grandfather wizard. He was loving, he was light. But in the setting of the physical setting where I was around him, uh, you know, personally, he was, he cussed, he was brash, he was a bully. He would, uh, I would, I, and mind you, I've done eight years in India. I now understand Punjabi. Um, so I'm listening to his phone conversations. I heard him tell someone on the phone in Punjabi, uh, if you, you know, if you fuck with me, I'll, I have the connections to have you, your dead body floating down a river. So, wow. you know, um, it's, it's interesting how that, uh, how, I was interacting with him in the physical, in this very like personal up close uh, place. Um, I lived at the ranch. At one point, I think I babysat his grandchildren, Angad and Fateh, um, for a whole summer. Um, and I was at the ranch a lot. Anyway, point yeah, is- Yeah, you're like really I in was, there. I was in just, his like- yeah. I'm pointing that out because I wasn't anywhere close to that as a kid growing up because we were in a totally different space. So that's really in, you're like hanging out in the inner spaces of like the casual to the extreme public affairs. The only place that I didn't go was the dome and that was off limits. And that is where he slept. Um, and now we know that a lot of horrible things happened in the dome. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was around his uh, in that in the ranch for quite a while um, and around him and I was doing the this psychological thing where I and I wish I you know hindsight is 2020 I wish I had the guts to say this all publicly and, and I would have you know if I could go back in time I would probably say things to him in a very different way first of all I wouldn't have let him say those kind of, you know, tell me that I want to get fucked in the ass. I always said, how dare you talk to anyone like that? That's crude, like, shut up. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, at the time I just kind of took it in and I was processing this in a very uh, internalized way. And I uh, was doing this exercise and I kept trying to dare him to acknowledge um, to communicate with me and to acknowledge that I was slowly moving from a place of devotion to this man who was like, I said, like, he was a godlike figure to me growing up. And, mm -hmm. and then a, a, maybe a grandfatherly figure, but 
close close to like what Sikhs would call their relationship as the guru to God, what Sikhs okay. consider, uh, you know, how Sikhs consider guru to be a bridge to God. I think that, and I don't know if you felt this way growing up, but that Yogi Bhajan was like a bridge to God, to the ultimate one. So I think that you're bringing up a really important point because depending on the, 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 um, the mentality of our parents and how much they kind of gave up their agency to Yogi Bhajan as that bridge from God, from Yogi Bhajan to God. We're seeing that in the quote denier arena, that kind of he's God, he's the low, you know, that level of reverence. And, and some yeah. parents had that and then our kids got that. And not all parents, I think, fully had that. All of our parents, of course, had it to an extent or we wouldn't have been raised in the community. Right. But in terms of like fully submitting their kids over. Yeah. Well, that's a good point because I've talked to people that have really come, had very different approaches and relationships, both to 3HO, Sikh Dharma, um, Kundalini Yoga, and to Yogi Bhajan. So yeah, uh, yeah that it gets nuanced there um within my it's own finally family finally complex yeah keep going uh, i'm within sorry my own family because my mom remarried serap sarong her brother or sorry serap sarong's brother is guru shabad who married serap shakti serap shakti's parents are dr sakir paul singh and Carr, who were professors of chemistry at berkeley and mm. and uh and so in my family, in, my mar in, the, in the married family, um, yeah. Sarap Shakti and them have a very different relationship, I think, to Yogi Bhajan. I don't think he would have dared to treat Sarap Shakti and her son, Hargo, um, Hargo Manhadi, the way that I was treated, for example. And so if you ask them, oh, Yogi Bhajan encouraged, uh, paid for you know, um, people to go to college personally. Um, I just think this and, is such a good point you're bringing up because I think that was a part of what he was a master at is knowing how to like where he infiltrated different people, how he created different relationships and at different levels and the level of complexity around it. That's why I think sharing our unique lens of our experience is what's so important because it all ends up fitting together in some sort of tapestry of truth. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. And so, yeah, it is, it is multi-layered. It is complex. Um, so again, just to go back to what we were, um, my story. So my, yeah. my experience of him was, uh, is probably. Well, I so you're, was, you're telling us about the, the mind games you were playing with him to see if he could read your oh. mind around <laughs> how you're transitioning in your mind, you're transitioning out and you're seeing if he's tele telepathic enough to trace what's happening inside. Right. Yep. Yep. And I'm doing it in this like kind of funny way where I'm like, anyone who you, we've all done this where we're like playing the little games as kids or just, as adults, I don't know, um, the little games that you play that become like little internalized games where it's like, um, you know, 
yeah, hard to describe, but I was doing, I was like, well, let me try a different tone internally. I'll, I'll make fun of him. I'll try humor. I will tell him that he's, uh, you know, that he doesn't have any balls and let's see if that gets his attention. I would try like these bombastic things in my mind, trying to just get him to break character. I wanted him to like blink or, you know, make a signal that he just heard this thing that I was telepathically sending him this, this thought. And he never did. And then the, it culminated in this like moment where I'm sitting in front of him and I'm going, okay, well, this is your last chance. Cause I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to cut my hair right now. Literally I'm getting up right now. I'm going to go cut my hair. And he didn't even look at me. He was like talking about other things. And so I walked out of the room. I took my turban off, I braided it and then I cut it off my whole um, hair. And, um, and then I, uh, and then I go back into the room with the turban back on. I don't know where I put my braid. I think I put it in my pocket or something. I don't know. And, um, and so there's no, there's not, no one bats an eyelash. And in fact, um, over time, Yogi Bhajan, I remember going in front of his presence. He goes, oh, Miri Piri, you are really becoming such a beautiful son of Guru Gobind Singh. And I'm going, you don't, you're, you can't see me. And at that oh. point was when I had the ball, the guts. I don't want to say balls. I want to almost want to say I had the ovaries, but I don't have ovaries. Um, you know, <laughs> I had the guts to say, uh, you know what? I don't trust you. And that's wow. when he lost it. He slapped me so hard in the face that my turban flew off and everybody saw that I had cut hair. And that was Whoa. the moment. Um, and, and so that was like kind of, I was on the way out at that point. I was just like, I do not, I, I was just waiting for an opportunity to get out of there at that point. I had made the decision to leave. Mm. Um, I didn't trust him. I, I saw a lot of, um, and to this day, a lot of adults in the community, this is what make, why it gets me so angry when I see KRI with that stupid statement about how they're so you know in support of BIPOC and LGBTQ when I was uh, 18 year 19 years old and everybody in the community knew my situation because it's a small community everybody you know gossips and everybody knows everybody's business uh -huh. I didn't have any support none I had no none. people older people in the community saying listen I understand where you're coming from and I uh, I'm going to support you, that they would say, you know, there was no support. So to hear anything now, it seems like so um, disingenuous. And I know people change and they grow and they develop, but just to put a different perspective on it, I'm listening to a TED talk by a man named Dr. James O'Keefe. And he okay. is, uh, gave a TED talk about that was prompted by his uh, 18 year old son coming out. And this guy is a, Dr. James is a, uh, I believe a, a neurologist, but he decides to approach the question of gay from a scientific background and comes up with this whole concept of how, uh, and it's fascinating, a biological perspective for the need, not just in a family setting, but for humanity to survive of their being mm. gay humans. 
it's such mm. a one uh, interesting perspective, and and there are things that happen in utero uh, with a uh, mother's chemistry that maybe lend towards uh, uh, the chances of a gay uh, a child being gay uh, increasing, and these are fascinating new um, ways of looking at at it. But just to make it simple, society we need uh, diversity in in society. It makes us stronger. It's not a weakness. Yes. And and you know there was none of that. It was when I was young. It was just the best thing I ever heard was I I love you even though you're gay. That was the best even. thing I could expect. Even though you're gay, I love you anyway. So it was this part of me and that brings me to like where I did a lot of my work getting to where I'm at now, which was working through therapy, working through shame, working through guilt. And a lot of mm. the things that I internalized because Yogi Bhajan told me personally that I would never be happy, that I would come home in a coffin um, wow. that, you know, and all the really abusive things that he said to me, but also just society's view of me and how I internal, I swallowed that in and kept it inside yes. me. And I said, I'm little, I'm, I'm, you know, less than. Mm. Well, I mean, I just mm. want to acknowledge what you're saying. The, the verbal abuse that he spoke to you on, but also just the permeating culture to grow up in an environment where like who you are, the message is who you are is wrong. And that yeah. no one around speaking up at a time when you're a child being verbally and physically abused and no one speaks out, that just, you know, it amplifies the shame. One, you're internalizing shame, but it's amplified because the silence is so loud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is, that is a, uh, I, I love that, that concept, the silence is so loud. Um, that silence was the loudest voice in the room, yeah. Yeah. And it continues to reverberate. It's like what you're talking about is like the years later of the work you've been doing to reclaim self, to reclaim identity that I'm whole, right? Mm. The, the, again, what you endured, it, it's, it's so complex and multi-layered. And for you to be standing here sharing your story, it's just, it's magnanimous. It's so powerful. Your, your voice matters and it's so potent to hear you reflect back at your 18 year old self and speak truth to power here. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what I'm doing. And so in a way it's cathartic to talk about it, but the other side, flip side of it is it's scary because I'm, I, I do feel like, especially within 3HO as it stands now, it feels like you're screaming into the wind. No yeah. one's listening and they're, they're just taking oh, the Olive Branch Report, we're just taking it in and, and letting it just dissipate. I asked my mom about how they're dealing with the repercussions of the uh, report coming out. And she says, yeah, it's just really, it's a really tough time for us, but you know, um, my her current husband doesn't want to, doesn't want to even hear about these, want, will not, 
entertain the notion because it's so it just makes him physically ill so he doesn't and then on and then i have other family members who say yeah but it's all these people just want money and so none of it has been verified all every claim against yogi bhajan is someone who wants money and that's another um real abusive sidestepping um just well it's a form of victim shaming and it's an sure. old narrative of our community like when i started hearing a lot of the um deniers language what rang through my body it was so familiar i was like oh that's what we heard as children that's what we heard in 1985 why are we still perpetuating the narrative of 1985 and that shows you kind of the stuck in place time that so many people are at and that's why like the mm. you know putting BIPOC and yeah we support LGBTQ putting that on the veneer of the teachings isn't enough and because there's a long history of real lives that have been disint attempted to be disintegrated mm-hmm because mm. of what your ex sexual expression and you hadn't even chosen that it, it was like how come we how come we're learning about this powerful way to move sexual energy through our body and we're not learning about sexual relations in a holistic way in our community mm. yeah well there's a lot of um uh I think there's a sort of a Catholic, it's interesting, Yogi Bhajan actually has a Catholic background. A lot of people don't know this, that he went to a, board, a Catholic boarding school, raising the Kundalini. So you're taking your sexuality and you're shooting it out your crown chakra. And, it, and, and it's, uh, it's a kind, it can be a disembodied approach to sexuality, even though they said, that uh, sexual yoga that I remember growing up, but did you ever hear this concept that sex is the highest form of yoga? That sex is the highest form of yoga? <clears throat> Can be, yeah, have you, um, have you ever heard I mean, that? I, yeah. I innately knew that, but that's not what I witnessed growing up around us. I grew up a tremendous amount of repression around sexuality I think and I, everybody I sleeping heard... around. Yeah, um, I had heard, I think I had heard my mom saying it, um, but it maybe came from like a, a, a woman, uh, Kulsa, uh, the ladies camp. Maybe she came back from ladies camp one year and said that, you know, uh, Yogi Bhajan said that uh, sex, uh, but this of course was between a man and a woman, okay, is can be the highest form of sex of yoga. Um, but in a way, it's like very, it's, it's like taking the dirty, taking, taking what is sh sinful, shameful sex and, and light washing it, making it, uh, saying that, oh, well, it, if done properly, it can, it can uh, elevate you. Um, well, I and, think that a lot of the things he taught on sexuality was quite skewed. And then now that we know the amount of sexual sadistic abuse he was, he was dishing up, it's extra psychosomatically confusing to our own systems. But I think as children, we were absorbing that confusion very early and didn't yeah. even know what to do with it. And I think you were really speaking to that. I wanna ask you a question. Sure. Um, 
I know that you, um, you also um, lived with other people, you had some guardians, and then there's just, there was more that happened to you in terms of like being ostracized from the community. And I want to see if you want to share any of that in the sense that I know the interactions with Yogi Bhajan were really intense and obviously traumatizing, but the impact of what others have done, like you're still connected in the community. And I kind of want to get a sense of that with you. Like, how do you deal with that? Because you've had not a lot of support in, in your own healing, you know? Uh, I'm not sure. Like, well, I mean, I still have all of my family are all part of 3HO. I mean, so how do you deal with that? How, it is, how do you interact in that way? How do you handle uh, what, what, with that? I mean, okay, so uh, nine years of therapy. <laughs> the first part of therapy was literally just going, okay, well, you were in a cult and you have to come to terms with what a cult. And I, so I, I spent a long time really just, I would laugh about my experiences in India. I'd laughed about Yogi Bhajan. When I lived in LA, after I left, I would tell my friends, oh, I was in a cult, but I would laugh about it. And they would, they, no one knew, they, no one had ever heard of it. Um, they didn't know who Yogi Bhajan was. They didn't know Kundalini, what Kundalini Yoga is. Now it's super different. I get random people being like, oh, I heard, I'm, I'm taking a Kundalini Yoga class. Do you know anything about it? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do know something about Kundalini Yoga. Um, but at the time, nobody knew, and I just kind of laughed about it, and I had moved on and just kind of disassociated from that whole experience. And and you know, I I even uh, took on a nickname. I didn't I didn't go by Mitty anymore. I was tired of explaining my name, um, and you know, uh, and and so it wasn't until um, I actually began to really work on. I got trapped in another cult actually while I was in LA. Um, and I think that I was, um, I think that I was primed to be in another cult because of my previous, <laughs> because of being in 3HO. Actually, I think I wanted to, that narrative that I was no good um, stuck with me and so I was trying to prove that I was good by being in a very extreme cult um, mm. even though I didn't realize that's what was going up again this is all in hindsight um, sure. but I wasn't conscious of the abuse and so it really took going through therapy through psychotherapy for about eight years to even get to the point of grieving and admitting mm. the true depth of what being in a cult did to me and mm. what a cult does. It takes away your autonomy. It takes away your family dynamic. It takes away, there's so many things that, uh, that I suffered from as a result of being in 3HO. But the main one is just being, essentially being forced as a kid to raise myself. I, I realized like I had this feeling of being an orphan. Yeah. My whole entire life. That's looking back at it. I was in charge of me. My parents were not there for me. They were busy doing the cult. Uh, they were busy doing everything. And, and, and they surely they suffered as well and still are. Um, 
but but they didn't they gave up a lot of the responsibility of being parents and so the result and the result is like i remember being doing incredibly adult things as like a four-year-old i remember cleaning the bathroom in the broadway ashram in la by uh, at age between three and four cleaning a bathroom can you imagine kids today doing that like my, yeah. you know um but yeah, yeah. uh so I was, you know, and, and still am having, so the first part was like cult. It's a cult. You were in a cult. This is what cults do. And then the second part was actually saying that to my family and confronting them and starting to create boundaries. Because yeah. what I did was by not naming it, I allowed them to make me the, what they call in, in, in psychological terms is the, is a family patient. I'm the mm. one with the problems. I'm the one with the issues. Yeah. And, and, and in lots of any dynamic, there's going to be the person in the group that's like the scapegoat, the black sheep, the one that has the problems. And we can all mm -hmm. focus um, on the fact. And I remember going to a family therapy with my family and, and they didn't talk about anyone else. They talked about me. So I was the one that needed fixing. Right. Um, <laughs> And so it took a while hmm. for me to say, you know what, you guys, uh, and I told my mom, you really, you really, as, as hard it is for me to tell you this, it was really hard to say, you really gave up your responsibility as a mother. And that's not even a responsibility, hmm. your instinct, your instinct yes. as a mother is to jump in front of a car for your child. And you just didn't even have that. You didn't have that, uh, in almost any time in my life, you sacrificed me. <sighs> to, and and so they, she did it over and over again. Um, but she sacrificed wow. herself. Right. Um, so uh, so I had to be able to really say that out loud and that was a hard thing. And then I took time from my family again, claiming, you know, uh, actually asking for space and saying I need a time to do my own healing and work on myself and I can't interact with you anymore for a while. So I had like two years where I wasn't talking with my family. Uh -huh. um, recently, actually that was, um, maybe six years ago. Um, anyway, uh, so that there was that part of it. And then the third part was just like, again, like I was saying, I took space to work on myself. It was self-awareness. It was radical self-love, self-care. Yeah. Um, yes. uh, doing, uh, re oh, I love this one, reclaiming breathing. Because uh, every time I would do like, even just like a, gym yoga class at the gym and they said inhale I would just like I was re-traumatized by the word inhale exhale wow this is a really good point because I've heard other um second gen kids that have, you know have immediate trauma response to yoga meditation to the word inhale that's really something what's the most free thing you can do breathe breathe and we have a psychosomatic connect right to trauma to it that's incredible mm -hmm. <clears throat> i noticed a similar thing um 
again, what I found so fascinating is that by hearing your stories and other of my peers' stories of other kids that grew up in our community, I could feel that trauma in my body and mm. like physiological holding patterns of overdevelopment, of overtraining to not feel myself. And that just kind of became the theme, like, wow, we learned this as kids. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but we had yeah, to, because if kids are being swapped really young, what else do you do? You're, you know, you're at this really tender age where you need the most nurturing. You're in this environment where there's no nurturing for like, for example, when you got sent to somebody's to live with them and they've never had kids, kids and they have no nurturing capacity and they're beating you. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do yeah. as a kid? Other than... Reclaim. Yeah. Yeah. Reclaiming your inhale. I just wanted to bring you back to that because that was so poignant. <laughs> yeah. Reclaiming my breath. Um, it sounds so and basic. And a cup of tea. Um, you said earlier, like making yourself a cup of tea is a radical act of self-care. And I can concur because there are so many ways that I can self-neglect and still call it well-being. Yeah. And it's not because I'm neglecting myself. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how something as simple, and, and actually I was going to say tea, but uh, for me it was actually oatmeal. I would make myself a bowl of oatmeal in the morning. And the fact of just eating this thing, um, you know, it's easy to do like really extreme self-care things. Like, you know, uh, I could do things that uh, I, I could, for example, not eat for a long time. I was very good at, actually I almost had like an eating disorder. Um, when I was in LA, I really wanted to be skinny. Um, and so uh, I could do like, very extreme things to myself, but something like just committing to making myself breakfast in the morning, oatmeal, very basic, right. nourishing, you know, yourself. nourishing mm -hmm. that seemed radical. Um, and I, and it was like these steps that I would do, I would take a day to do something that I just, just to um, do nothing just to have a whole day to like maybe go shopping or go to a museum, things that I would love to do. Um, I would, I would like focus on doing that. Um, and listening to myself and listening to the things that gave me joy. And I took like, I did little, lots of little, um, I don't know, uh, little exercises. One of them is, and I was telling this to Mina, it seems so simple. I went through my phone and put little emojis next to people's names in my contact list to remind me of how they make me feel. Um, uh, uh, and so there are some people in my phone <laughs> contact list, and I'm not going to name names, but they have tornadoes next to their names. Um, <laughs> It's, it's just a simple little step, something that I did to, um, to remind myself to take care of myself, uh, radical yeah. self-love. Um, and you know what was yeah, really uh, interesting is right around the time that I, I began to get good at this radical self-love was when I met my now husband, eight, uh, mm. which is now we're married four years. Um, but that was uh, over eight years ago. Wow. Um, 
and and so and and one of the big pieces that I work through is love, um, and I now really have a deeper understanding of what love is. In a way, it's it's something that you can build. It's a it's a verb. It's not a noun. Um, yeah. it's an act, it's loving, uh, being in a place of love. It's, it's a, it's a verb, it's a state. Um, and, um, and so, and one of the things I was able to do also was to release my family. So now I can talk about them and not feel this absolute, um, crisis, uh, come on me. I can see the faults in them. I can love them. And I don't feel attached to the outcome of whether they love me back. Mm. Um, because yeah, I do so think, I do think that, uh, the saddest part about all of this is, is like for some of the people that are still in the three HO, uh, clutches, let's say, is mm -hmm. that there is a, it's so it's really sad to me to think that there's uh, this lack of self-love and self and there are people I think who feel pretty trapped they've created a life where they are dependent in whatever way emotionally spiritually financially to organizations that don't allow them to be authentic and love themselves mm -hmm. And to have the things that really bring them joy, that we don't have to keep, you know, living in deprivation and sacrifice and, you know, not having so many of the, you know, there's just so many ways we were trained out of our body and to be okay with it, you know, and I think out that, of our body, um, like you have to punish yourself in order to, yeah. To sacrifice this, not have this, not eat this, not do this, do this, like everything is some level of control. And instead of being able to actually feel the pulse, what do I feel like? Like that was never a part of the conversation to be like, well, what's going on for me? What do I need right now? If anything, we were trained to not feel our body, whatever you're feeling, that's not right. Don't feel that. Feel, go here instead, you know? Mm. And I think yeah. it's important for yoga students to hear too. What was the word that too. you used? Which one? Yeah. What? The thing that you were saying earlier about kind of, um, uh, I was saying like transcend out of your, your crown chakra to go to- Oh, uh, disassociation? Yeah, there may be different words for it, but uh, transcendent to, to uh, the, the, uh, one of my, um, classmates is has been saying some interesting things online a call Sahai has been talking about some imbalances within kundalini yoga which i find very helpful conversations for people to be able again to hear this is not the purpose of me talking to you and you doing these is not because we want to talk shit about people we're actually doing this because no. we want to because oh, we to want to help people Uh, and to share our to experiences. Mm-hmm. No, go mm -hmm. ahead. It's a little bit of a lag in the uh, in the video feed. Yeah, I'm noticing. Are, and and you're. So um, I want to 
know if there's any more aspects to your particular story you'd like to share with listeners, um, specifically highlighting the lack of care and the lack of support as a gay man, a gay young man, but more than that, it's that there was a cultural, cultural, um, spewing that, you know, that you've had to deal with that aftermath. And so now to see that the community, you know, do you feel that the community is more supportive of gay and lesbian people now? Or do you feel like this is just kind of surface levels and that these issues are still very much important um, or not being addressed in our community? Um, yeah, I, I think that the world has made a lot of progress when it comes to LGBTQ and let, let's bring in BIPOC into the picture as well. Uh, there's a long way to go, but it, we've made a lot of progress as a, as a globe and, and yet, uh, you know, there are nuances and there are countries to this day now where if, let's say if you're gay, you can be killed. Um, so is the work over? No. Um, in the Kundalini Yoga community, are they using it, I think, to cover up abuse? Yes, because, you know, uh, they're continuing to, uh, talk about kundalini yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan when there are very credible allegations of Yogi Bhajan basically taking the uh, yoga of uh, Swami uh, Brahmacharya uh, or is it um, basically co-opting yoga uh, different techniques from other people and not giving credit and then rewriting their history um, so, you know, they, they're just trying to maintain the, the, do the bare basics to continue the operation and the financial operation that it's become. Uh, Kundalini yoga, copyright, patent, limited liability with a, you know, it's, it's just become such a big business. Um, this is why breathing, I said, it, it seems so fundamental but it took me reclaiming my breath seems like, you know, breathing is free. No one has a copyright or a patent on it. Um, yeah. And so I, uh, I get to be involved in, um, I like to look up different, uh, what's that guy? Just the other day I was, I was looking up that guy, uh, Scandinavian guy who does like the cold showers and the breathing. Uh, Wim Hof. Wim Hof, right. So uh, I was looking at Wim Hof and I'm going, yeah, how ironic now that, but you, you go to his website, there's no like, you don't have to uh, sign your firstborn child over. You don't have to do a $10,000 program to, to learn how to do it. He'll just, he just does, you can just watch a video and do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, there's so many, well, you know, I, I think know. there's, you're just bringing up great points. Can you hear me okay? It, it 
it is glitchy, but I'm just trying to like kind of be patient and let it just catch up. Yeah. Slow down. <laughs> well, I would like to share the music that you've chosen for your episode. Ooh. And would you like to tell us about that? Um, I think I kind well, of know why based on your story, but I want you to say <laughs> it. Yeah, no, uh, I chose um, Pharrell's Happy. It wasn't because it the song changed my life or I don't have a very strong connection to him. The, the, it was just the lyric happy because, you know, Yehi Bajan uh, kept pointing his finger in my face. And I remember him at one point saying over and over and over to me, you'll never be happy. And I kept saying, I just want to be happy. And, uh, and, and the shame and the kind of internalized the, the, uh, that self doubt created, um, it kind of snowballed and created a dynamic in my life where I wasn't happy. I was very unhappy for a lot of my young life. And so yeah. reclaiming my happiness, reclaiming my breath, it's a big deal. And that's what the song is about, happy, you know. And it is a very big deal. And you're very courageous in your reclamation. So thank you. <laughs> Let's go ahead and... Here we go. And don't be afraid if you want to do a little dance too. No. Oh, thank you so much. We're doing it. <laughs> okay. Uh, everybody, this is Miri's story in Manifest. It might seem crazy what I'm about to <laughs> Yay! I wanted to say thank you for that. Um, it is so important, you know, that um, the what you're what you're highlighting here is that you knew your truth, you knew your own pulse of, of happiness, and in everything that you've endured, and everything that anyone that's listening has endured, that there is a pulse of truth within us. No matter mm. what we've been told, no matter what we've been indoctrinated to believe about us. Yeah. We matter and we can have happiness and we can reclaim our breath and our life and our happiness. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for putting it in those terms. Um, yeah, that's what this is about. And, and, and actually, um, you know, the thing that I've taken away most from the whole experience of the Yogi Bhajan fiasco, but, and it is a fiat, it's, it's more than a fiasco. I mean, it's a tragedy because I, you know, I, I'm talking or, I mean, we're talking about our sisters being raped. And mutilated for, and, and also, um, and also groomed 
to your point earlier that you don't even know that what you've endured is abuse. And that is a psychosomatic disconnect that to some extent we all got. But when mm -hmm. the women that got directly abused from him got it extra because the things we were trained spiritually in, we, you know, we're then trained, you know, that kind of stuff creates such a deep disconnect in our somatic and psycho psychology mm. to reclaim self back from that is, is tremendous and tremendously mm -hmm. hard and requires all of our love and support of each other. I mean, I want to say amen, but yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but what I've, and what I've taken really from it is uh, the, the lesson in this, and I was listening to uh, Pamela Dyson, Primka, talking yeah. about how when she was at the point of publishing her book, or she was up all night thinking about it because she was struggling, you know, she was like, should yeah. I put this out? Is it the right time? Should I even do it? And she wasn't sleeping all night. And then she said that um, she had a vision. Yogi Bhajan came to her in like a, like a very, very vividly, um, this manifestation of Yogi Bhajan coming to her. And he said that, and, and she said it became instantly crystal clear to her um, that the message that she got was that Yogi Bhajan is in a kind of hell and that he could only be free when his followers were free. The people yeah. who um, ha who have his consciousness in them, you know, when they are free, he is free. Uh, it's about freedom, and it's about uh, the guru is inside you. You, your teacher is you. It's in you. And yeah. the lesson, uh, and one of the so that was an interesting thing she said. And the other is that if she could go back, talk about hindsight is 2020 if you could go back in time to herself when she was 25 years old in LA first met Yogi Bhajan she would have uh, she said she would have taken the book of Swami um, uh, the uh, autobiography of a yogi uh, and thrown it in a fire <laughs> because, because she was uh, primed by the book to expect yeah to have to have challenged uh, to, to, to find her teacher that she would be challenged. And so she tolerated him putting his hand on her breast, for example, in their first uh, yoga class. Um, and so, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, the guru is inside you. It is not, when we, when we look to the outside like that, we're opening ourselves up to um, all kinds of mischief and worse things. Yeah, totally. Well, I just want to say, um, commend you again. So yeah, that's what I have to your, say about that. I want to commend you again for um, the courage to heal, to reclaim yourself, but also in this re this year to come back and to share your story in the community. You know, you could be like many other who are silent and just watching from the sidelines. And I respect that choice too, because I want anyone mm. to do what's right for them, but to come forth and to um, revisit this after you've done so much healing is also um, um, just a courageous act and to support our healing and also a new level of healing within yourself. So thank you. Mm. Well, you know, again, yes, big, 
let, let it be, let that be so, yeah, thank you. Is there anything lastly that you'd like to say or share with listeners before we wrap up? Uh, I think we covered a lot. Um, and I do think that this is a process. I think, again, you know, we're all learning new things and there's, these are developing times. Um, new information is coming out. And essentially, I do feel that we're all in this together. Let's, um, let's make a, a new story for ourselves. Um, but also, yeah, I, I do agree with you about the fact that people this has been one of the hard parts for me personally, my family. I have people in my family who are in leadership positions um, through, and uh, it has, it is really uh, very vivid in my mind that there are people who their, their silence is, is the loudest room in the voice and the and loudest uh, voice in the room as you said earlier today, it is that silence and, and for whatever reason they feel they have to do that. But there are people, they, they should be aware that that silence is, has an effect. Um, and I do hope that more people, especially, I mean, let's talk about the children of, of some of the leaders. Because um, I can think of some of the leaders of, uh, in the Kundalini, the person who authored the uh, KRI manual, Dr. Guruchanan, he has a son. Um, where are the people who maybe the children of the leaders, but uh, some of the young people who are leaders, where's their, their silence is, is, is deafening. Um, and I do, let's, I mean, I do pray that we'll see more people have the, have the guts, have the courage to do what's right. And, um, and to realize that the only thing to fear as, you know, FDR said is fear itself. Um, <laughs> so let's not, let's rewrite the story. This is good. It's uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, you're speaking to breaking the code of silence. Yeah. And what we're now learning is that Yogi Bhajan was an, um, a very masterful predator. And one of the tools of predators is to use silence as a way to keep each other silent, to, to keep each other safe. And as we share our own story, we realize, wow, we're actually more, we're freeing each other by telling our own stories. So thank you. I want to yeah. thank you again for your courage here and your voice. Well, thank you. And a big hug to you. <laughs> Hugs back. Um, this has been the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. Thank you so much for tuning in. And that's a wrap. <laughs>